So we are in this section on um, what it means to be a man of God. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, what we already all know as, as we live in this culture. The culture, as, a, as, it, as it deals with what a man is, is completely on the downgrade, obviously. And you see it in several categories. Our, our culture's view of manhood and not just masculinity, but just being a man. Obviously, the, we've, we've dealt at length with uh, the, the sinful doctrine of demons that has left gender confused and all that. And so we're, we're not going to belabor uh, that area of study. But we do want to talk about some of the common ways that our culture is uh, in its sin and its plunge into uh, wickedness is, is completely uh, transforming what it means to actually be a man. Men today in our culture are uh, manifesting what you would expect for those that deny God. And it should be uh, obvious to us in those that we know who are unbelievers, that this is the trajectory they're on. I just jotted down five areas that we notice. The first of which is effeminacy. Effeminacy, or men who'd rather identify with femininity, uh, thinking like a woman, um, looking inward and living by the emotional dynamics exclusively in ways they perceive that women live, feeling like a woman, not leading at all. Men are becoming more and more effeminate as they defy the design of God. It's, it's, um, it's a plunge into a, a love of self and a narcissism, a, a self-comfort. And um, sadly, in their deviance, as they're given to it, they would rather live this way. They would rather think uh, like they imagine uh, women in their feminine relationships think. Secondly, men are not just effeminate in our culture, but they're indifferent to what really matters. There's not just effeminate characteristics, but indifferent characteristics. They, they've given up on caring about anything truly important. They're not talking about what matters. They're not interested in thinking deeply about what matters. Men today literally are just closing off regarding anything that really ought to be thought about, even at jobs that require serious skill and serious thought, there is either a, uh, a use of it for the, the supremacy of a man over others. In other words, instead of seeing your career as um, skills through which there is fulfillment and the winning of bread and then passing on that fruit to your family. It becomes really only all about whom I want to be and be perceived at amongst my peers or they're just at work going through the motions despite what uh, 
is required at the job. They might think deeply about the skills required, but they're just going through the motions. Nobody's really happy. You notice it on the road, the slightest offense. There's just no, love is truly growing cold as Jesus said it would in the latter days. Men are indifferent about what really matters. They're indifferent about relationships. They're either rising above everyone else, trampling them to get ahead, or they are just merely going through the motions. So men are effeminate, men are indifferent. Thirdly, they are deviant. In other words, they've designed their life around carnality. You see this more and more, the exploitation of others merely for greedy self-gratification. The deviance that is on the rise and accelerating in our culture as the Lord has given them over has resulted in men designing their lives around carnality. You see more and more children exploited uh, in perversions. You see more and more marriages just being trashed and now this rise of relationships where the institution of marriage isn't isn't um, an interest on the part of a man he just wants to go from relationship to relationship using it and exploiting it for cheap gratification and the age doesn't seem to matter so men are effeminate indifferent deviant then there's just malevolence they're malevolent that is to say they're barbaric there's a rise in our male culture of cruel dominance there's this desire it seems to be malicious and barbaric it's not just retaliation it's like Proverbs 1 says they lie in wait looking for ways to damage someone else. Um, they love violence. There's just barbaric, cruel dominance with a callousness to it. It's in video games that they spend their time looking at. It's in all the films. There's it's in every attitude. It's on the road. It's, men are not just effeminate, indifferent, and deviant. They're malevolent. And then lastly, they're adolescent. They're adolescent. I mean, men today are uh, like overgrown, aging teenagers. No self-control, boyish juvenile, uh, unlearned. They, they just don't want to learn anything. The school is hated from day one. I'm not saying that when you were in junior high and high school, you didn't have a problem with authority in general and hard work in general, but that is the point, right? You're in junior high. Men are in their 30s and 40s and 50s with the same sentiment. They are unlearned. They love to just go forward with no wisdom. It's just juvenility 
and it results in uh, serious imprudence. They don't make wise decisions about most at all. It's, it's on the rise in our culture. These are the, the, the growing sort of more and more common characteristics of manhood. And the Christian solution, if we could call it that, evangelicalism talking about how to correct that. I mean, I've read a lot of books on manhood, the past ones and, and then some of the recent sort of wave of books on manhood. And some of them are um, intersecting here and there with the Bible, but, but quite often it's more uh, a counterpoint to these things that isn't really necessarily biblical. It's more like buy a truck, you know, wear some boots, eat a steak, rack your gun, you know, tell a woman off, watch ultimate fighting. That's, that's manhood. And in Christian circles, that's kind of what's talked about. We're going to take the the hill, we're, we're soldiers, we're warriors. Now, I'm all for masculinity, I'm all for uh, chivalry, I'm all for uh, soldiers being soldiers in a battle, I'm all for all of those things. But I don't believe those things rise merely out of um, being a male. Uh, because as we have seen, men can become juvenile, undignified, foolish. None of that is manly. It's just reckless. Even effeminacy in a man uh, is where the flesh goes when it doesn't have a biblical view of these things nor the power to change into them. So it, it's not helpful for us to correct the culture with sort of this macho idea, you know, don't help weaklings, get, get a hold of, you know, those in your life and tell them what to do, tell them what for, just, and um, we've got to come back to <clears throat> what the Bible teaches about this, and so we're going to do that, but to start out, let's just look at uh, one verse in 1 Corinthians 16, very familiar to all of us, but let's just examine it for a moment. 1 Corinthians 16, this is, of course, um, not really necessarily about masculinity versus femininity. This text is more referencing manhood as opposed to childhood. Maturity as opposed to immaturity. Paul says in this closing of 1 Corinthians, remember this is the 1 Corinthians letter, so he's dealing with a church that is immature. I love the fact that he, he claimed them anyway, you know, sometimes we look at uh, immaturity in church life and we just literally don't want to associate with it at all. The Apostle Paul associated with Corinth even though they were a royal mess and just to read 1 Corinthians straight through you're like who would go there? <laughs> Why would Paul even claim them? 
And yet here he is at the end of his letter. He's encouraging them. Notice verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly encouraged him to come to you with the brothers. It was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has the opportunity. I mean, even Apollos, uh, the, the disciple of the apostles and mighty in the scriptures, is going to go there and do some instructing. Verse 15, I urge you, brothers and sisters, you know the household of Stephanas. They are the first fruits of Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to ministry to the saints. You also be subject to such as these and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I mean, Corinth is working, laboring. Paul's encouraging them to do the same. So as immature as they are, Paul's still doing his work in their vineyard with his instruction. He still wants them to grow up because he believes with hope that they can. I feel the same way. I feel like if... If we're immature as men, if this is our culture and it leaks into the church, we're not giving up on this. We, we, we can grow. We can mature. And so right in the middle of all of that wonderful one another body life stuff, he says in verse 13, I want you to be on the alert. I want you to stand firm in the faith. I want you to act like men and be strong and that all that you do must be done in love. Man, what a great little way to close um, a letter to a very immature church led by immature men. Back in chapter 3, you're, you're familiar with what he said to them. You leaders in Corinth are like children. You're acting like immature children. And what did he mean by that? Well, he says, you, you have strife with one another. Look, petty strife is a sign of immature leadership and relationship. Petty strife. I'll be talking about this to some degree at Courageous Churchmen, but... And that is so true, man. If you want to really just put your finger on the pulse of where your relationships are... You're going to have to ask the hard question, am I, am I petty? Am I, am I a petty person, easily offended, which is a lack of love, which Paul deals with at the end of this verse, um, holding grudges, uh, not willing to work together, not willing to strive, have my little world, it's my preferences over everybody else's. I mean, that right there is a sign of fleshliness, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 3, and he's dealing with a church where it was rampant at the leadership level, so it was trickling down into the men of the church, the body of the church. So I like what he does here. He, in, in this simple way, reminds them at the end of this letter, this is what it is like to grow. This is what it looks like. This is how you measure it. And he just kind of does this little thing here in these bursts, these commands. So we'll just outline it. You can outline it a bunch of different ways, but I just basically said this. We're to be on guard. We're to be on solid ground. We're to be on to maturity. We're to be on divine power, and we are to be on selflessness. 
selflessness. So notice the first one. Be on the alert. You're, you're to be on guard. Be on the alert. <laughs> um, this is familiar ground to us. We've seen it all over the scriptures, even in our study of 1 Peter. Peter will, by the way, in chapter 5, verse 8, say that you have an adversary and an enemy, so you can't, <clears throat> you can't stay in an immature condition as a man because you're no match for the enemy, enemy in and of yourself. You need truth. The enemy, our intel on him is that he has schemes, he's coming, he's deceptive. We've looked at that as a group here in our studies. And he is seeking to devour. So this is basically a command to, to stay awake as a man. Stay awake. That's what this term means. Be aware Men are aware, biblical men, real manhood is aware. You can't know everything, so there's strength in numbers, you know. You make me aware of things, I make you aware of things. Together we are more aware collectively. Three strands of a cord, it's not easy to break. Um... But you notice in our culture, but, but particularly in the church, how unaware men have been. It's, it's like the indifference and the childish carnality pursuits and the juvenile way that men have immersed themselves into their private life. And even after work hours, they kind of engage in this sort of it's it's my world and me time and I have my own little place at the house no one's allowed to come in that's just my world you go in there what do you find in your particular office or your room or your man cave whatever you want to call it what do you find in there what do you what would anybody find in there is there anything that would make you more aware of what really is going on like aware of the coming of the Lord soon. Remember 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, here's how you're to live. Would we find in your man space, your office, things that are making you aware of an adversary who's coming to seek to devour? Are you aware? Are you awake? Are you awake to your weaknesses? You know where the potholes are. You know where the dangers are. You're, you're not imprudent in the sense of naivety, Proverbs 7. Are you aware of the moral challenges? Are you aware of your need for the spiritual disciplines, as we'll be taught here soon in the Super Seminar with Dr. Don Whitney? If we went into your private space as a man... Would we find things that are making you aware? What's coming into your family that's false as an idea, an ideology? Are you aware of your need to be equipped more? Would I find things in your private and personal space that are alerting you to areas you've not thought through? 
an idea presented to you at work or through your wife or a colleague or a book or something on the horizon or on YouTube, an idea that's come your way, are you aware of how to filter it? Would we find ways that you are, you're alert? That's this term. Look at 2 Timothy 4 for a moment. Um, and again, I'm, I'm always, when I think about what Paul told Timothy about the latter days, I'm always reminded when I come to this text about what's going to happen in the latter days. You know, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. I marvel at the pronoun, they. Who are they? Notice what he says. We're to preach the word, verse 2, in season, out of season, in our readiness. We're to correct, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. So there's this constant putting into the mind of the truth, and we're to do it with endurance and patience. It's to be a constant correcting and rebuking and exhorting because the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine. Well, he's not talking about the world because they here still heap for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. So he's talking about the church, unaware, not awake, clueless. And he says, they, verse 4, will turn their ears away from the truth. That's a deliberate act because on the other side, they will turn aside to myths. So they get teachers that will make them uh, feel good or give them the things they want to hear. And it is a deliberate move away from the truth and toward myths in the church, in evangelicalism. My suspicion would be that if that happens collectively in the corporate body, it's because the men in their private life, left themselves unaware and asleep regarding what was important. Satan, what do you mean he's going around seeking someone to buy? I don't even think about that. What do you mean, uh, you know, alert prayer, like Ephesians 6 says? What do you mean we have to wear the armor? I mean... I'm, I'm just too tired at, at work. I'm just too tired. To, what do you do? I got to do all that? I, look, I just want to go home and in my replenishing physically, I want to turn my mind and my heart off. Well, this is what the culture loves about its freedom to be narcissistic. This is what's leaked into the church. And Paul says to the Corinthians at the end of the letter, watch it. Be on guard. Be awake. Be 
prayerfully alert. You remember Mark 14? They were praying and they fell asleep and Jesus had to come back three times. What did he say to Peter? Could you, could you not pray with me for even an hour? And Mark writes in there, and he's the amanuensis for Peter, so I'm sure he's writing in there about his friend on behalf of his friend for the gospel account and says they fell asleep because their eyes were very heavy. I wonder sometimes if Peter just said, no, you got to put that in there. We were exhausted. You know, <laughs> there's just such humanity to it. And what did Jesus say? Pray that you will not enter into temptation. Wake up. Wake up. So Paul says first here, you know, Gregoreo, stay awake. Be on guard. Be on guard for the return of Christ, the end of all things at hand. Be alert about what is important. Stay focused. Yes, replenish your body and your mind. We, our eyes get heavy. We're tired. We're human. God knows that. He knows all that. You can't. You can't live without replenishing, and sleep is a gift. I give people that gift on Sunday morning all the time. <laughs> but, but that has nothing to do with what Paul says. There's no mitigation of what he says here. Be, be awake. Be aware. Secondly, he says, be on solid ground. Stand firm in the faith. This is very, very simple because we just finished this portion of 1 Peter 4. Uh, the faith is the body of truth, of doctrine, upon which we stand and that keeps us in the lane so that we don't veer to the left or to the right. This is the body of truth we're to mature in, right? Okay, so Ephesians 4, we are to be equipped. I just was at the Founders Truth and Love Conference and was privileged to preach Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. And right there he says in 12, 13, we're to be equipped for the work of the ministry until we all attain to a unity of the faith. We're, we're to come closer and closer together in our unity, preserving the unity of the spirit that's given to us as our mind comes into a proper understanding of truth. That's our foundation. And we've, at Grace and Granite, talked about this endlessly. So here at the end of this letter, Paul says to them, you need to... Stand firm in the doctrine. So how do we do that? Well, notice what Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 1. I like the way he puts it here. It's going to take some labor. There's no way around the labor it's going to require. Verse 27 of Philippians 1 so, so there's a singularity here. Only conduct yourselves. That's a 
verbal idea that says, you know, get rid of the, the excess baggage and clutter and focus here. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what does he, what does he mean by that? Well, he says so. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I'll hear about you. So it should be your reputation. I love that. Don't pass over that phrase. He could have said, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, you will be standing firm, dot, dot, dot. But he says, I'll hear about it. It is to be such a habit of men that when someone refers to them, oh yeah, I know that, I know that man's reputation. Doesn't have to have some leader or elder hovering over his life. He, he has the reputation of what Paul is about to say. This is his reputation. Look at this. You are standing firm. So there's that standing firm again. And let's make no mistake, this isn't the macho willpower of a strong masculine man. In fact, the verb in 1 Corinthians 13 is passive. So the same way that Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 2 1, Timothy, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, a passive imperative. It's a command for you to do it, but the strength doesn't come from you. You give yourself to the strength that God supplies by yielding to it, and in, therefore, in that way, you're becoming strong. This is the same. Stand firm in 1 Corinthians 13, 16, 13 is a passive verb. You stand firm, but the firmness, the strength of it comes from God. So there's this faithful yieldedness to God. There's a humility that makes you firm. Same idea here in Philippians 1. Here's what I want to hear about, that you're standing firm in one spirit. That is to say the core of our inner life is being unified. We are being strengthened together with one another. We're not alone, and yet we are an individual part of the group who has a responsibility. With one mind... I don't know, church life got so lazy in the pragmatic movement. Uh, you know, of course they couldn't strive with one mind. Everybody's thinking whatever they want to think, and then the culture's coming in. And you go into some Bible study where people have not been well equipped, and it's the diverse perspectives that are unprovable not demonstrated from scripture, but they're just strongly held opinions. They're just all over the map. And you're going, how could we ever accomplish any ministry with something like that? If you're a reader, you, you notice that the average sort of uh, best-selling type books on how to live the Christian life, the opinions are, you know, they're all over the map. You look at books on manhood and what a man is to be, it's just... Unless it's grounded in Scripture, the opinions are all over the map. Paul says to the Philippians, to walk in a manner and live in a manner worthy of our Savior means that you're thinking more and more in one track. 
the track of Christ, and it is changing your inner life. That's what he means when he says, in one spirit, with one mind. And look at the effort, striving together. What a great verbal idea. We are grabbing each other's arms. We're coming alongside each other's pace. We're lifting up each other's burdens and limitations. We're strengthening each other's hands. In what? Notice, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So what is it we're doing in getting alongside one another and lifting one another up? It's, hey, how are you doing in the truth? Dear friend and I were talking yesterday. He said, we always have a reputation as churches of meddling in people's lives. And I think, of course, in today's evangelical world, that would be like meddling, but... It doesn't get any more clear than this. We strive together for the faith of the gospel. We don't just strive for the gospel. We strive together for the inner life unity around the truth. So if you take that concept and you see it's parallel then in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, that is exactly what Paul is saying. Stand firm in the doctrine. Be on solid ground. Know what you believe and why you believe it. And if you don't know or you don't have convictions, be ever learning and ever striving to, to protect it and guard it like we finished last year's Grace and Granite session on, protecting the gospel with a ministry that promotes the truth. Well, here's an admonition to men. You have a personal responsibility to stand firm in the doctrines. Do you know them? Do you know what the major tenets of the faith are? I mean, some people dispute whether there's 10 or 12, but do you know what they are? The, the things that you must believe or your soul is threatened and in peril. It's, you ought to just, you know, you ought to just know them. And, and if you don't, you ought to Start to study each area of the doctrine. What, does, what should I believe and know about inerrancy and infallibility with regard to Scripture? Because that's always attacked. And if I don't believe that the Bible is inerrant, uh, I, I can't know God. And make no mistake, the scholastic world of professing believers has been slowly and throughout church history, always denied that doctrine. Well, that's a pretty important doctrine if they're always going after it. Satan hates that doctrine. Do you, do you know how to just find one or two verses that you can memorize that defend those doctrines? What about what we believe about the person and work of Christ? What about the atonement? the substitutionary atonement of Christ. What about the Trinity? A lot of confusion on that today. What do you know about what the Bible says about the Trinity? You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have, the, the point here is you know how to defend the truth. We learned that in First Peter 
You make a defense of the truth when you hear an error. You search your Bible. This is not a plea for the men of grace and granite to all live at the same level of study because some are called and gifted and given to the church as teachers who will have to dig in further. But it is a call for all men to stand firm in the doctrine. So what if you get separated from your brethren? Can you stand firm in the doctrine? So little by little, we're learning it. Little by little, we're grounding ourselves in it. Little by little, we're learning places in the Bible that defend the truths you must believe, virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, revelation from God in his written word. These are crucial truths. If you don't believe them, your soul is in peril. That's what we're working toward, and that's what Paul says to the church at Corinth. Stand firm in it. Be established in it. Be on solid ground. And then this third phrase, and we'll kind of move forward through this one. On to maturity. I love this. On to maturity. Act like men. It's actually, um, it's, a, it's a translation we like because if you really want to be a biblical man, you kind of like the way that sounds. Hey, act like a man. Act like men. But actually, it's, it's literally more the idea of um, an adult, mature adult. There is in the term courage. We've talked about courage in last Grace and Granite season. There is in the term the contrast with childishness, right? You go back to chapter 13 and... The Apostle Paul makes a wonderful little comparison when he's talking about revelation and the revelatory gifts. And he says that certain revelatory gifts which were given to the apostles are going to go off the scene um, and the church is going to come into its mature understanding of revelation. I believe he clearly meant in there the closing of divine revelation as given through Christ and then inspired by the finishing of the new covenant through the apostles and now the closed canon of scripture. But the interesting point is in verse 11 when he says, it's just like how naturally we know to go from childishness to, to adulthood. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. It's, it's a wonderful way of saying you're on to maturity. Well, again, in the equipping passage of Ephesians 4, same thing. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We're to move into adulthood. And real biblical manhood means we act like maturing men we grow up as opposed to acting like children to stay juvenile or to plunge yourself into childishness is a sign of unbelief deviance from God defiance of God's design he designed us to move to maturity 
So we're not to stay inexperienced. We're not to ignore the lessons of history. We're not to look at our mistakes and and uh, excuse them. We're to learn from our mistakes and gain experience. We're to make better second choices than we did the first choice. We're to grow in our application of principles in a way that works itself out in our life wisely. Like Proverbs says, we are to learn wisdom so that we don't stay naive and imprudent. And what's the very beginning of wisdom? The fear of God. So a man who stays juvenile is demonstrating that he doesn't fear God. Men who fear God act like mature human beings. They grow up. They're not trying to return to the immaturity and um, frivolity and reckless abandon of the season of our early childhood and life where we didn't reason like anything an adult would think. We reasoned like a child and we lacked self-control and we lacked self-restraint and we didn't have wisdom. We didn't see trouble coming. We walked right to it. In fact, we ran to it. We, we throw off restraint when we're children. We need hemming in. This is why in our culture, no one actually can go get a job and be a sustainable adult who votes in our culture's leadership and government until you're 18. Why? Because we know that whether we believe every culture ought to imagine teen years or not, it is a time of childishness and juvenility and unrestrained passions that need hemming in. It's a dangerous time. It's hard to believe that we, we see in our culture that's the time parents take their hands off the whole dynamic because they're just, I don't know what to do. Right, of course. It's the most challenging time because the, the desires and cravings of the human carnal heart reach some sort of powerful industrial lust level in those adolescent, early adolescent, pre-adolescent, early adolescent, and teen years, and it just gets very, very dangerous, difficult. But that's when a father... And the men of the church ought to be the model of maturity. And what you have is teenagers watching men act like teenagers. Again, I, I certainly understand that there's, there's a sense in which when you work hard and you get some time to play hard, uh, you, you do enjoy playing hard at whatever it is you love to enjoy. Those things are not an issue. The Bible says nothing about that. In fact, God has given us all things freely to enjoy if we have thankfulness in our heart. But think about the things that, that were true uh, that made character a problem when you were younger. 
self-control was missing. So we know that moving on to maturity means self-restraint. Has to mean self-restraint. Defying authority, that was a regular part of our younger years. Real men do not defy authority. Real men understand authority is necessary in life. Christian men understand it is God-given. There is authority and submission in the universe by God's design. And now that there's sin in the world, it is, of course, a safeguard of monumental proportions. Necessary laws. Because mankind goes astray from his youth. Real biblical men stay under authority, appreciate authority, respect authority, honor authority. Biblical men model what it means to submit to authorities, even authorities that are unreasonable because a man has a galvanized strength in him that sees a bigger picture than personal vengeance. Real men come under authority willingly, freely, controlled, a choice. That's what Paul means here. Grow up into manhood. Stop Staying in the old characteristics of childishness, a lack of dignity, a lack of self-control, imprudence, no moral restraint or strength, fear of God, a love of authority, knowing the importance of submission. Go on to maturity, he says. Then... On the heels of that, he then says, be strong. And what he means, literally, is be rightly strengthened, we could say. That's a great translation. Be rightly strengthened. Um, Again, here we are, passive. The command. And um, so we're strengthened in the power of God. We're strengthened by the power of God. Be constantly strengthened. Well, we know where the source is. So what a great way to finish just the sort of the manhood dynamics there before he wraps it up in this last command to be on selflessness. All that you do must be done in love. He clearly does not mean love that is toward one's own self. He's saying all that is done must be done in love for God and love for others. So this is classic, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Sacrifice. Men are alert and awake. Men are standing firm in the learning of the truth of the doctrines that God has given us. Men are not childish and men are trusting and depending in the strength that God supplies and men are sacrificing for other people. That's real manhood. 
That's what our young men need to see in us. They don't need to see, you know, that, that we want to sort of comfort ourselves by becoming less than masculine, some effeminate thing. They don't need to see us indifferent to what really matters. No, men, men think about what really matters. That's what creates a strong home life and strong children who understand what really matters. Not, not a, a dictatorial male figure in the home, not a, someone who's a hard man to have a relationship with. No, someone who's a gentle, patient instructor, but who's always on the truth, and he's always with what really matters. That's what the kids need to see. Man, my dad or my uncle or my brother, my older brother, or this man in my life, this discipler, is, is always on what really matters. And that's manhood. That's the model I've had. I'll tell you what, the, the church would absolutely turn cultures and communities upside down with its bright light if the younger generation were coming up like that. I'm so, I'm so thankful that there's a young generation in this church. And, and by the way, they get mentioned all the time. Anybody who ever visits here, what in the world is going on with your young men? I love to hear that. Sometimes we will do camps with the youth and our pastors who shepherd our young people will have other churches involved and um, in times past in the church, youth leaders had a particular ways they thought those camps ought to emphasize truth when they brought in a speaker. And it was almost always, yes, let's teach the Bible, but it was peppered with ideas like we have to have a lot of fun and we have to, you know, well, of course, you're, that's, and nobody wants to hang around with junior hires without giving them some busy fun to do. But, but I've loved that, that the camps for the young people all the way down to just coming out of sixth grade on into the junior high years, our pastors have, have been about what really matters and been models. And they've helped us dads to get our homes together to reinforce what they're teaching our children. And what that's done is it's put into our college ministry now, more than a decade later, young men that when a visitor shows up, like, where did they all come from? How did you get these young men to be so serious about the truth? And I don't mean, you know, I don't mean a cookie cutter, pretentious, sort of overly pious young men. I mean, young men that really have battles and struggles and cravings and lusts and the stuff that they're going to have to get control of in order to be a man in their family. But they are, they are hungry men. They are seeing examples of manhood in the church and they are collecting together to help each other. I mean, the roommate situations that I hear about with some of these guys that are single and in either college or older singles, man, that, that's a serious place to live, those those rooms, those houses with five or six guys, because they, they have a lot of enjoyment and they build a great friendship, but they're about what really matters. Where did they get that? 
examples of men in the church who are in the next season of life. That's what they got. We don't need to be effeminate. We don't need to be indifferent. And we certainly aren't going to countenance any deviancy and perversion and malevolence. By the way, be careful of the sort of the macho dominance kind of culture that you get exposed to in these athletic and sports dynamics. Be careful, men. Every athletic um, competition has both the, the wonderful qualities of athletic competition, but it's also cluttered by a subculture. The subculture comes from the morals of those who are involved from the top down. And Christians are to stay away from God, ungodly things. And there are ungodly elements in these subcultures. And, and I mean every sport. You see it in just about every athletic competition. Great discipline, great skill, elite athletes doing elite things. We're impressed by all of it. We love it. It's great entertainment. There's nothing more wonderful than the way God used all of that. And it's even talked about in ancient times, even in Scripture. But there's a subculture of worldliness attached to that stuff you have to avoid. And one of the things I notice about some of these sports is, and you notice it in the upcoming athletes, it's just all about self-worship and personal cruelty toward other people that you dominate, even in sports. I mean, just as much as people on the road cannot even handle one person getting in front of their car without an absolute rage going on in their car, so it is true that somebody loses on the playing field and they can't stand it. And so there's a subculture of when you win, you just literally cruelly dominate someone else. You, if you spend a lot of time feeding your mind with athletic competition and you're not filtering out the subculture, you're going to slide into some of this malevolent characteristic of manhood. You will. I've heard it. I've heard it among Christians. Oh, yeah, ultimate fighting. We just crush the guy. You know. And I'm, I'm all for great athletic competition where there's a dominant winner and a loser that's got to develop skill. Uh, I never bought into that whole idea. Everybody gets a trophy. That's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> even when we put our kids in athletic competition when they were young, I remember the nonsense that went on on the sidelines, you know. And my son's coming off the soccer field at seven years old. Yeah, we scored a goal. And the coach is telling him, no, we, we praise the other team. And I'm like, no, we don't. He said, well, we don't keep score in, in this soccer league. I said, well, we as a family, we keep score. Nice goal, son. You know, nice goal, son. Um, but... But personal domination, because you're malevolent in your heart, that's a subculture, and that's all over athletic competition. Be careful, men. Be careful, you hunters. Be careful. Um, I, I'm not concerned about any of that hunting and all. I love it. But there's a subculture. Be careful of it. It's filled with not biblical manhood, but reckless barbarism, callousness, 
Be careful. And then our young men in the church do not need to see us being juvenile. Men are real men. They're alert. They're aware. They're standing firm in the doctrines. They're maturing, being strengthened by God, and we do all that we do in love. It's interesting that he tacks that on the end. Act like men. Be strong. Be all, do all that you do in love. <laughs> Nobody wants to talk about that verse if you're all macho. You're like, act like men. Yeah, let's have a whole men's retreat. Act like men. I don't know any retreat saying it must be done in love. Yeah, because no man's going to sign up if he's, if he's wanting all that hard stuff. But no, real biblical manhood, that's the capstone of all of it. All that you do must be selfless. That's real manhood. So. All right, well, what's on your mind? Let's talk about it a little bit. If you got a little bit of time, you can hang out. We got a microphone, don't we, Matt? You ready to go? Why don't you get right there in the center and be ready to send it. Right there, Cameron, and then we'll come down here to this young man in the middle here. Yeah, it wasn't really a, a question, just more um, a praise to God and, and a thank to um, you and our elders because uh, you were saying how helpful it is for the young men to see um, you guys leading. And when I came to the church, and I know a couple of my friends, same thing, We, it was super helpful for us to see your patience with us and um, leading these qualities out in front of us because we came showing all these bad traits, sinful traits, and then just watching you guys be patient with us, teach us how to how to lead properly and actually live a pure life. So um, I just want to say thank you for just how um, that's even that's still helpful just to see the, mm -hmm. the elders and the leaders constantly pouring into us and leading us in this way. We, we had, when we were young, I mean, Lance and I, we, we go so far back, and we were kind of hotheads, you know. We, we were kind of sons of thunder a little bit. And I remember we would take on every evangelical issue, you know. And we had some good older men in our lives saying, you know, several things you need to learn. First of all, yeah, you need to go after this doctrinally, but some problems resolve themselves on the front end if you just wait a little bit, you know. Those were good instructions to us. I remember my first mentor ever outside of, you know, hearing John MacArthur preach was <clears throat> a former mafia guy who'd come to Christ, Tony Diana. What a beloved brother. And he, um, he would listen to me. I was a young man. And he, you know, here he is, this guy saved out of garbage. And he's been maybe a Christian five years, three, three to five years. He was, just loved God's word. He was so humbled, and he was a gentle guy. Even though his previous life, he wasn't gentle at all. He was a brawler. I remember I was criticizing some, some young guys at the church who I thought should be living better, you know. And I'm telling him, I can't believe that guy acts like that. And, you know, he just, he was so patient with me saying, hey, you know. Yeah, I know you can notice things like that, but you'll, you'll notice that in your own life a lot, too, as you grow. So you might want to cut that guy a little slack, you know. <laughs> he was so paced in a way that I just was, it shocked me. It was like, you know, 
So you're right, brother. Um, men who've learned these lessons, they, they do really pass it on, pass the fear of God on to the next generation. It's crucial. So we, we had the same thing. <laughs> Even MacArthur used to say to us in some meetings, eh, you know, we'd be like, you got to go after this, you know, and he'd say, ah, just give it some time. So Lance and I would go out of there. <laughs> We would. <laughs> oh, man. We had a lot to learn, so still do. Yes, sir. Jordan. Um, you and I have talked about this some, but I was sitting here thinking about it, and I realized that we, we haven't talked about it much because um, I simply don't have time for hobbies, and the Lord has hemmed me in in that way because I love to have fun in the ways that I love to have fun. And I think graciously the Lord has made it so that I don't have time for that kind of thing. And it's just made it impossible, either financially or time-wise, just completely impossible. But I do find myself at times envying brothers who have the time or the means to enjoy their hobbies. And I sense that probably not a lot of my friends, but many men in the church over the years have come out of a life that's been handed that as the echelon of, of the, uh, the man life is getting to the place where you can enjoy yeah. your time and enjoy your hobbies and your means have given you that ability. Um, so because I haven't had a whole lot of time to think about it, we haven't talked about it much, but can you help me and anyone else that needs it to balance that? Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Because you have really uh, the full spectrum of, of uh, seasonal dynamics there. So you do have uh, basically the, the picture in the Old Testament, especially Ecclesiastes, that most of our life is hemmed in by work and work is fulfilling. And that's what God made us to do, right? Solomon said he's given us work to do on the earth. Leisure is not outside of that. In fact, he says is there's nothing better to do than to work and then eat the fruit of it. So enjoy the fruit of your labor. So you've got leisure in there as well. Uh, Whitney Oxford's um, classic study on work is, is uh, careful to uphold all of those dynamics, but talk about what it means to be a man at work. So I think there's, on the one hand, the idea isn't, you know, that life is going to be 95% work, 5% play, until you get to a certain age, and then it's 95% fun and 5% work. That's not healthy. It's never been the call of, of life. Retirement, anyway, I mean, every man knows who's got any sense at all uh, that if you leave your job and you go into retirement, which is fine, you're eating the fruit of your labors, but you sit around and do nothing, that's maddening in about a week. It's maddening. And most men don't just go do their hobbies. And if they do, and that hobby has no stimulation to it other than some perfunctory activity, it's maddening. Men are designed to produce and to enjoy production or support production or be some element that helps production. That's how God made us. So there's that element. So there's nothing to be ashamed of if you're in a season where uh, so much of it, if not all of it, is that for the sake of a paycheck and supporting your family. These are all great virtues the Bible calls us to. So you're in the doing 
with no rest, uh, no, not rest, but leisure and hobby in a certain season, you have in your heart fulfillment happening at God-designed levels. And, and, and a man is always burdened if you have charge, right? Somebody is under your charge. You've got a wife and children. So you're, you're coming home. You're not thinking about hobbies because your family is your hobby. It's your life. It's your, it's your charge. It's your responsibility. Sometimes in that wonderful blessing of the common grace of life where God gives us leisure and enjoyment, it's really children and that season of taking care of them and a wife that's your enjoyment. So those two kind of overlap. On the other hand, um, God doesn't promise hobbies. Um, There's nothing in the Bible that demands that uh, you'll be in a place in the world where you can enjoy them. America's a strange um, 300 years of God's history in the world. Um, Europe has had its places and times where wealthy cultures have sat around doing nothing but their hobbies. Uh, Most of the world, though, is war-torn, economically strained, burdened with uh, the lack of resources, and leisure and fun is is really um, very simple and not elaborate. Uh, so God doesn't promise that you're going to grow up in a place where you have all that, that you're going to enjoy all that, or even that a lifetime of work is going to give you the freedom to enjoy your inheritance. Doesn't Solomon also say in Ecclesiastes that it's foolish to imagine that um, working is some guarantee of your future enjoyment of it because somebody's going to come along, take your inheritance, and ruin what you built. So he says... It's chasing after wind if you think those things are going to fulfill. So it's, it's kind of both. You, you have seasons where you don't have any of that. Somebody asked me recently that very question. What, well, they were asking another family member, what does your dad, what are his hobbies? And my, they couldn't think of a single thing to say because my kids know that relationships are kind of that for me. I do, uh, I have through the years played golf, that's fun, and um, I love to ski, but it's an expensive sport, and, they're, and around here you can't get going fast, because uh, <laughs> there's just no mountains. Um, if I lived near mountains, I might experience that a little more in certain seasons of my life. Um, later in life, when you're older and can't do a lot of physical hobbies, you pick up different hobbies, because, you know, man, I worked all that time to have these resources to have hobbies, and now I physically can't do them. Um, I, I don't know, you know, the Bible really doesn't say, what it does say is that you, to enjoy work, Psalm 127 and 128, you enjoy the fruit of your hands, uh, even the Lord building upon it for your fulfillment, even while you sleep, might be the way the Hebrews translated there in Psalm 127. So it's wonderful to work. It's wonderful to eat the fruit of your hands. Leisure is not a sin. Um, enjoying hobbies is not a sin. But you shouldn't look at your life and envy someone who gets to do that because God is sanctifying us in every season of life. Honestly, I'm not really sure I am the kind of instrument in the Lord's hand that could be 
given a lot of leisure time because for the sanctifying grace in my life, I have to be hemmed in different than that. Other men may have uh, a greater spiritual ability to handle that without it distracting them from their task, if you, if you know what I mean. So we don't compare our lives with others. We just say, Lord, this is what you've given me to do. Here's my charge. Here's my responsibilities. Here's what I do enjoy. Whether I can get to do that or not, you're in charge, and, and it's, all of it sanctifies me. So does that, does that help a little bit? I kind of meandered around it a bit. talking about the concept of a thankfulness for every bit of everything. Um, and, Truly. And that helps me calibrate in some respects both the, the side of looking at other people and the side of comparing my life and, and how I pursue it. I think I just, like you said, I, I, wanna, I want to uh, pursue maturity. And when I'm bringing up my sons, I don't want them to come away thinking of my dad's reputation as and I love the, the imagery you had and what's in your office or what's in your man space or whatever, um, if you even have one of those. And um, what does that say about you? What are your kids gonna know? Or the people that are in your life, what are they gonna know about what's important to you when you have time to free your mind to think? What's your priority? Yep, and every man's gonna be different. God's given us great uniqueness. If we're thankful, we can do it. We're free to do it. I, I, you know, we should never be imagining that uh, no one can enjoy the things of life. Uh, but they are, like anything in life, there are risks and dangers. I don't mean safety risks, I mean spiritual risks. Anything can become an idolatry in a man's life. Everything is to be done moderately, never to excess because it becomes, as Hebrews 12 says, excess baggage on your life. It slows you down in the race. We're in a spiritual race. We're not here to, to work and work and work so that we can have all this free time. And sometimes when somebody says to me, I just want to work for myself and I don't want to work for anybody else. Well, you're always under authority somewhere. So, I don't, you know. And the more money you make, the more you're going to be tied into things that are hard. Uh, so it's not really freedom in that sense. It might be nice. You might really handle those things well, as some of you I know do, but it's not freedom. You're still under the Lord's charge. It's still dangerous, and even money and leisure and fun can be an idol, an idol that we bow down to. Uh, so, yeah, we just have to be circumspect about all of it. Thankful, fear God, trust Him. Yes. Hey, Pastor. Uh, I've heard you talk about the personal dominance and the sports, the subculture, <laughs> hunting, all these things. Are there some where you would say it's just throughout the sport, throughout whatever it is that you just avoid? Or what does it look like? Does it filter truth? Um, while you're watching it? Or... Well, <clears throat> so clearly there are lines that would have to be drawn. What happens if a sport doesn't care that we're killing people? I mean, you know, oh, is that, that's never happened? It's only in movies? No, movies are made about ancient cultures that became barbaric, known for it. 
today on the earth, there are barbaric tribal dynamics all across continents and their sports are to the death. Are we gonna be okay with that? No. So somewhere we draw the line. Um, I wouldn't venture, venture <clears throat> an opinion on, on whether or not athletic competition in our country in various sports um, has that element. I do think that all you have to do is watch the leaders of the sport, the money dynamic in the sport, money, money, and I mean, look, avarice is uh, a part of our corruption where there's a lot of money there is a lot of corruption and it will become powerful and men will love the money and love the power of it. Well, there isn't really an athletic competition today that doesn't have that element in it, so we've got to be careful of it. I do think that some of the fighting sports, um, I'm not against you know, skill and martial arts and all that. I think that's, that's a wonderful discipline. Some of it profoundly elite. Uh, but if you watch the subculture, the attitudes, <clears throat> the, the athletes themselves, how they think about victory, what kind of example they are, what their family lives are like. I mean, all this stuff is more and more known the more these men and women become famous. They're often going from relationship to relationship. They have illegitimate kids all over the country. I mean, let's, let's not be... Let's not just pick on one sport. I mean, you know, the NBA is fraught with great elite basketball players we admire on the court, but they also have illegitimate children all over the country. They're profligates. They're wicked men. And we don't expect them to be anything but wicked if they're not saved, but at the same time, this stuff gets excused because they're great athletes. We have to be, as Christians, honest. And, and I don't mean that you're gonna be able to change the sport. I just mean when your kids are growing up in it, they have to be able to avoid the subculture. I've told you before, we like to ski and snowboard, but I told my kids, if you wanna be a snowboarder, I'm all for the skill of it and the enjoyment of it. But if, you, if the subculture starts leaking into your mind and heart, you're done. You're not, under my watch, you're not gonna go do it. If that's all you're going to be attracted to, skateboarding, uh, whatever it is, you're not gonna get involved in that while you're under my roof. Um, so we try to enjoy those things without the subculture, but it's hard, it's tough. So no, I, I wouldn't say to anyone what they could or couldn't enjoy. You just have to watch your heart and insulate your heart with truth. And it'll become clearer from God's word that what, what you're vulnerable to in your weakness and needing to grow and what God's principles lead to in, in holding them faithfully. Um, but no, I, you know, I suppose uh, if we start doing gladiator stuff to the death, um, you, you, you might be shocked at sometimes the way Christians think about that, um, that for sport that might be not so bad, but I just think it's because we've, we've grown carnal and juvenile in our understanding. We don't appreciate life. Uh, violence is desens desensitizing us, uh, the acceptance of violence. And we even have in these riots and things like that, uh, the leadership of our culture, they, they don't think anything of that anymore. Um, it's not a shock to us anymore. It's all over the internet. You, 
you see somebody's life being snuffed out by somebody in some dominant way and it you go from that to your favorite you know Amazon page to shop for something trivial like it's nothing doesn't even affect us that person just got killed uh, we we send it to friends entertaining but what's going on inside of us I mean that's that person just met the living God without Christ does that ever come across your mind you know so yeah I'm, I'm concerned of what we're teaching the younger generation and, and what does Paul warn Timothy in the latter days men are going to become brutal disobedient to parents brutal it's a word that literally means barbaric you know callous barbaric so. yeah. one more and then we got to go Thanks, Matt. Hey, Pastor. Uh, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, I know we're sort of talking about fun and maybe more specifically humor, um, just in terms of, you know, there's a, I guess the relationship of humor maybe to maturity, right? Just because you have guys like maybe Steve Fleming who are incredibly quick-witted, but there's also kind of a way that, you know, they carry themselves that's, you know, it's never thought, oh, this person is immature, this person is acting unwise, especially for us. Like, you know, we, I think we, some of us can mess around quite a bit. So I just want to hear your thoughts. <laughs> well, I think, I would say there are two things that come to my mind. And these are, these, you know, I'm kind of like the Apostle Paul right now. I say this, but not the Lord. So this is just, this is just me opinionizing a little bit because you asked. I, I think there are two sides to this. One is... Um, I do think there's a juvenile love of laughter and frivolity because we don't like to think about serious things. Where the line is on that, only parents and children working through those dynamics would know. I used to tell my kids, a little of that goes a long way. So, and you know how it is, when, even when you get into the college years, all that guys and girls want to do when they get together is just laugh and make each other laugh. There's a lot of pride in it. There's a lot of fun in it that's mixed with pride. You don't really know where the line is. Sometimes, you know, just to get a rise out of somebody, it becomes provocative and sometimes crass. That kind of stuff's juvenile and carnal. And um, we get there pretty quick if we're not careful because we're fleshly. And so we have to be very, very careful. I'm not saying that with close, dear friends, that you might not turn a phrase that's really funny and it's at someone's expense in sarcasm. We do that all the time because it's, it's a wonderful part of human relationships when you really know people closely and you're not offended by you, you know them. You know why they're saying what they're saying. It's not a personal dig at somebody's life like Paul warns about in Ephesians 5. But there is a juvenile nature to the desire to always be frivolous and laughing because thinking seriously about things is harder work. And the other is so natural that it becomes fleshly and carnal pretty quick. So a little of that goes a long way. We have to be careful of that. Self-control is a part of that. On the other side, though, um, when it comes to being a man and, and being humorous, some people are super witty. But I do believe Ephesians 5 is clear. There should not be any hint of impurity or indiscreet uh, you know, kind of talk. And the language there is talking about vulgarity. It's talking about profane things. 
So taking human dignity and stripping humanity of its dignity for the sake of something crass or filthy. The language there is there should be no filthy talk. Well, clearly, or no impurity or coarse jesting. It's an interesting translation. I mean, you can see the trouble they had translating it, but it was basically everybody knew there was a time when language, I don't mean a time in history, but I mean there's a time in a conversation when it goes from, uh, from something funny and clean, we might say. It's not undignified and lowbrow. It goes from that into something lowbrow. Um, we, we have vulgarity in language, um, and, and it's become commonplace now as part of conversation, but it is still vulgar. Why? Because those words are often in our society referring to undignified things about human anatomy and sexuality and those things. We use those words that way. And, and plus, we're not a society where that's been the common thing. So it's also an affront to crowds of people. It's a disrespect and a dishonor to crowds of people to be popping off with harsh, coarse words in, in disregard of context. That's immaturity. Mature people are careful and thoughtful and they think about context and they're sensitive to others, right? Let everything be done in love. So I think humor has a mature way it presents itself. I mean, I, some of the funniest, wittiest guys are here on our pastoral staff. These are mature, godly men. Their families are funny. They are funny. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not like that. These guys are really, really humorous. And when they get on a roll, it's fun with the close relationships we enjoy. We all enjoy that. Some of it's super sarcastic, too. It's just... Uh, but... It never degenerates into, what, what do we say in our culture, bathroom humor, we use that term? I don't mean that it, we just avoid talk about what goes on in the private areas of our life, but, but it avoids crassness, lowbrow, undignified things about humanity. It avoids all that. And it certainly avoids something that would be sensual or sexual. We have to be very careful about that. There's even borderline dynamics that border on marital life and sexuality and things like that. There's even humor about that. We have to be careful. Are we standing with the right gender? Uh, is it really necessary to say? Could I, be, could I be misleading someone? Is there someone here who's less mature who's going to take something dignified and make it undignified? These are all elements of what it means to be maturing so yeah, I think it's a danger to just kind of let that area of your life go. And if you're really funny and witty, you're going to have to bring self-control to that area because you're going to love getting a rise out of people and make people laugh. It's just enjoyable to be the life of the party. It's just, we enjoy that as human beings. And other people love, they just wind you up and let you entertain them. That's fun. Uh, but again, restraint is a part of maturity. So how much restraint can you put to it? That's important. I don't think you should sit around listening to comedy all the time because life isn't really largely comedy. Uh, it is relief. Comic relief's great. Comedians are fun. Um, yeah, I mean, not the filthy uh, entertainment, but entertainment that's humorous is, is enjoyable to humans and it gives us comic relief about life, especially good, good comics who talk about the funny things in life that really do touch our funny bones, but, but in the end, uh, it's more important 
you know, Spurgeon has a whole section on humor, and he has a great balance in that, but that's basically the, the same view I would hold, that there's human dignity you should never trample uh, if you can help it. Context is important, but everybody's going to be a little different on that. So self-control and love and sensitivity is probably the principal way of controlling it. But I said those things, not the Lord. So that last part was of the Lord. So, all right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for these men and this kickoff of our season. Help us be real men of God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.